Social justice means applying the law equally to all people. But in practice, that doesn't always happen. I'm John Gonzalez. I'm here at my law partner, Jack Derora. We practice law. We seek social justice. On this show, we reveal the conflict between the two. You know, for a while, it was just us in the office over a cup of coffee talking about the news of the day with social justice issues dominating our culture. Our focus became, how do we as lawyers make a difference? And now it's not just us. Today, we have Laura Bishop, an award-winning journalist who has covered Ohio politics and state government for two decades. She was named Best Investigative Journalist by the Associated Press in Ohio in 2020. She is also a graduate of the University of Michigan, Jack, so we've got to be a little more careful vetting our guests. (laughs) 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 We're going to talk about the juvenile justice system. And, um, you know, um, I came very close in high school to experiencing the juvenile justice system. Oh, wait a minute. Was that that car incident? No, it was a a different incident. But I was... um, I found myself at the police station after being out with some friends and getting in a little bit of trouble, and the um, the uh, sergeant called home about two o'clock in the morning. Woke my dad up and said, uh, "We got your son here, and uh, would you come down to the police station and and get him?" Uh, my dad said, uh, and I could hear him on the other, you know, through the line say, "Why don't you hold him for the night <laughs> to teach him a lesson?" And the uh, the officer said, uh, Mr. Gonzalez, we'd have to take him to juvenile detention, and that's the last place you want your son to be. And I would have been there the whole weekend. And, um, and I mean, reading what Laura and the other journalists have put together, uh, it seems to me that this system has had a reputation for— 40 years uh, or more uh, of not being a place that you would want your children to be a part of. And so when we're done with this podcast, I can ask you in private why you were at the police station. <laughs> it was a very minor thing. Yeah, was, that's uh, they all say that. Yeah, I, I, I was innocent. Okay. Lawyer screwed me. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but Laura, um, you welcome, by the way. Hey, thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Uh, you and uh, uh, a dozen other journalists um, uh, did a uh, investigation um, of our uh, juveniles behind bars. Maybe you can start with why did that issue come up and uh, and how did um, the, the number of journalists from different papers become involved? Well, I work for um, the USA Today Network Ohio. Uh, it's Gannett Newspapers in Ohio. There's 21 papers, including the Columbus Dispatch and Cincinnati Inquirer and Akron Beacon Journal. And um, I, I have been covering um, politics and state government and the criminal justice prison system for more than two, two decades, um, based here in Columbus. And uh, I had been doing some reporting on uh, the youth prison system, um, up, particularly up at the Indian River facility, which is in Stark County, and some of the problems that they were having uh, with staff misconduct. And I pulled the public records including some surveillance video. We had to get uh, our lawyer, Jack Greiner, involved in, in forcing them to give us the records. And um, we, you know, we wrote about how they were short-staffed and they were having a lot of violent incidences. And we published the story in October of 2022. And then 
around that same time, there was a very serious assault on a on a guard, David Upshaw, there, um, and there was also a, for the lack of a better term, a, a riot or a disturbance uh, that lasted for twelve hours. Um, kids, one kid had taken advantage of a, a new staff member who didn't know he shouldn't have opened the door when the kid asked for a refill of his water bottle. The kid forced the door open, grabbed the keys, uh, et cetera, right? So, and then these kids, they, they, they broke into the school um, area, and they did a tremendous amount of damage, like almost $300,000 in damage to the property there. Um, luckily, no one was hurt. Uh, they managed to get online, though, and stream it on Facebook. Um, and what was interesting about it is that, like, it really, to me, it showed um, how how they're definitely doing, you know, bad things. They're wrecking a bunch of s- state property, and they're um, and they're scaring a lot of the staff. It was like a real risky um, situation. But at the same time, they're like laughing and dancing and eating candy that they had grabbed out of one of the cupboards. And they're, um, you know, just being teenagers, too. And it really did, it really did stick with me like that is the mind of a, of a, um, of a juvenile offender, somebody who doesn't look, look um, at the long-term consequences and acts with impulse. Um, anyway, so that, that, story, um, that story ran, and uh, I ended up uh, down in Cincinnati for the first seven weeks or so of 2023 covering the Larry Householder trial mm-hmm. and um, met with some of the editors there. And we were talking about stories to do after after the Householder thing had concluded. And we decided that, you know, given what was happening up at Indian River and across the state, that we really we should take a deeper look at the entire system, both at the state level and at the local level. And so we started um, doing follow, follow-up public records requests. Um, I assembled a team from across Gannett's Ohio network. Um, so we had uh, Cam Knight from the Cincinnati Enquirer, Amy Knapp from the Maslin Independent, which is where in, uh, Indian River is, um, Amanda Garrett from the Akron Beacon Journal, Jordan Laird from the Columbus Dispatch, and some very talented photographers. And we started to um, you know, develop sources, pull the records, find out what was going on. And you talked to uh, parents of uh, juveniles that were in the system, and I read uh, some of those stories, which were horrifying. Um, what stood out to you, and, and was that a part of what you were doing personally, or was one of the other journalists reaching out to the parents? No, we were all talking to as many parents as we could as we could reach. You know, surprisingly, they're kind of hard to get a hold of. You can't get the name of the youth, uh, the, the kid who's behind bars, um, and... So it's just, it's difficult. And actually, one of the tricks we did was go to the uh, juvenile court at the county courthouse, hang out on like arraignment day or, you know, first appearance day. And then the hallway is full of families who are there when their kid just got picked up um, and taken to the local detention center. And I was really surprised at the number of people who were willing to give me their names and their phone numbers and talk about their experiences, and maybe the kid who they were there for uh, wasn't in the DYF system yet, but they had siblings or cousins or somebody else that they that they knew. So that was one way. And then, um, you know, during the course of reporting, there was that terrible injury at Franklin County Juvenile Detention Center. Um, 
Damarian Allen, he's 15 years old. He just turned 16. Uh, he got into a fight. He was supposed to be kept uh, apart from other kids. <clears throat> and um, and the, the staff messed up, and he crossed paths with this other young teen who he had a beef with. And they fought, and it was a quick fight. Like the surveillance video, we counted it down. It was like 10 seconds, and it changed his life forever. And it really changed the life of his of his family members as well. He's paralyzed from the chest down. And the surveillance video shows that, you know, once he went down, he was limp right away, and the guards were um, rolling him over and trying to pick him up. And then they picked him up by his arms and legs, and they dropped him on his face at one point. And then they dragged him into a into a cell, kind of left him in a heap over the over the bunk, over the concrete bunk. And the whole time he's saying, "My neck, my neck, put me on my back." I can't walk. I can't walk. Um, I think the staff probably thought he was he was just faking or playing. Um, and so Mary Washington, his mom, was you know really helpful in talking to her, and and she was uh, in contact with another family whose daughter died at the uh, Central Ohio Youth Center in Marysville. Alana, uh, Alana Richardson. She was 17 years old. She had a, um, a five month old baby, and she and her boyfriend got into a fight. The cops were called. They scuffled with the cops, and both the boyfriend and Alana got arrested. Alana ended up at the facility in Marysville. It's a local facility, and uh, she had she had a, um, a known heart condition. And um, anyway, you know, she went in on a Thursday night, and by Saturday she was dead. Um, and the guards marked off that they had made twenty six wellness checks. They didn't find her. The coroner's report said she died of her heart condition sometime between 7 a.m. and 10 a.m., but they didn't find her until 3.25 in the afternoon. And in that interim from 10 a.m. to 3.25, they had marked off 26 wellness checks like they had they had checked on her. Um, and her, her mother was very willing to talk to us about what happened, and she has a lot of questions about what happened and why her daughter wasn't found earlier and why she didn't get the care she needed. Are these outliers, or does this seem to be more of um, um, more indicative than of, a, of an overall systemic problem with the with these facilities? Well, I think the um, I think that at the Allens, Demarion De, De Allen and Alana Richardson, and also Robert Wright was a kid in uh, Circleville Juvenile Correctional who who died um, in August of 2020. We talked to his mom as well. Those are, I think those are outliers. I mean, those are very extreme cases. But there's always the potential for these kinds of um, tragedies to happen because it's such a powder keg. They have so, they have, um, they're struggling with uh, extreme uh, staff shortages. And then they um, have a tendency to lock kids away for longer periods of time in the interest of safety. But, um, it ends up making it less safe because then the kids are more volatile when they get out, more violent, more prone to outbursts. It's just a vicious cycle. You're referring to those three significant personal injuries as outliers, but it seems to me that the general atmosphere is wrong from start to finish. And here's what I mean. I you know, before we met, I'm online, I'm looking at juvenile detention facilities, and I can't find one article that says anything good about how any of them is run. So I'm just getting the sense that P. 
people without the right type of knowledge and sophistication have put these things together with little regard for the for the long-term care of these kids. Am I I missing something? You can look at um, news reports in almost any state and you'll find uh, major problems in their juvenile detention and correction system, I think. Uh, I've seen, you know, problems in Tennessee and Illinois and Michigan. Um, And it is uh, a population of kids who are extremely high need and... um, a lot of them come from very traumatized backgrounds. I think a third of the kids who enter the juvenile justice system, at least from the big urban counties, report that like somebody close to them in the previous 12 months had been murdered. That's the kind of trauma that they're experiencing. And so they're, um, they're acting out in terrible, violent, harmful ways that are, you know, that they're, they are, you don't go to the youth prison system if you were, skipping school or getting drunk or being rowdy or whatever. You're, you usually go there because you used a gun or you seriously harmed or injured somebody. Were most of the problems that you're reporting uncovered with the teenage boys in those facilities? Yeah, our focus was almost entirely um, – well, at the local level, it was um, – Males and females. At the, the state level, though, the prisons, the three prisons are all male. Uh, they have um, kind of a community corrections facility, a smaller setting for the girls that's um, hosted in uh, Montgomery County. Because I'm just thinking back on, on teenage years and teenage boys, and then you're taking some with, with the trauma and the violence that they've lived with. And I, I don't know how much the government can do to remove them from society for their crimes, yet protect them from each other. Um, what, what were some of the, uh, I'm going to say, excuses that were given to you or problems that were uh, identified by those in charge? In terms of like these kids and the problems that they have? Yeah, and, and how to address the, uh, you know, the violence, um, you know, teen on teen and, and those types of issues. Well, I mean, I think that some of the problems that the Department of Youth Services have is that they've got a big turn, a big churn of uh, churning in their, in their staffing. They're kind of missing those mid-career um, experienced guards. They've got a lot of newbies, and a lot of the newbies quit you know, within within weeks. Um, and if you get somebody, I think there's a learning curve to the job and you have to get in there and, um, and, and, and uh, it's an extraordinarily difficult job. You have to get in there and, you know, manage these kids uh, and understand what games they're playing and keep them occupied um, so that the gangs are not controlling who gets the TV remote, who gets the gaming system, who gets to talk on the phone, what, what snacks are allowed, um, or even making that mistake of opening the door to the kid who asked for a water bottle refill. And then, you know, the kid snatched his keys and the guard didn't know what to do. He, got, he said, I, I kind of froze. So I think there's a, there's a learning curve to knowing how to manage them. You know, when you talk about turnover of officers, I immediately think of really tough working conditions. But more importantly, I think about 
probably inadequate training for those officers and probably inadequate systems as a whole. Because, for instance, Gonzo and I, between the two of us, have raised five kids, and rather successfully. But put me in that situation, I'm not going to know what to do, and, you know, I'm fairly educated. It takes really some sophisticated training to learn how to be a correctional officer in those places, and I wonder really what level of sophisticated training they get and what systems are in place. Well, there's the, the DYS uh, runs its own like training academy, and it's an extensive um, preparation process. But again, a lot of them go they go through the academy and they they get on the job and they're like, yeah, this is not for me, and they and they leave in short order. Um, and also, the other thing I would say is that uh, youth corrections officers they it's a different job than in the adult system. Oh, they have all kinds of uh, restrictions about. You know, when they can use force, when they can, um, you know, most most of it is, you know, handholds and bear hugs uh, to try to control somebody. So if you got two teenagers who are who are duking it out, um, and I have to go in and, you know, try and bear hug the teenager to hold them back from pounding on the other guy, it's, it's, it's very volatile. Well, yeah, I want to— And there's a lot of injuries. Like the— Oh. You know, David Upshaw, he's— He's just not going to be the same. He's the officer who was attacked in Indian River in October of 2022. He's using a walker. Oh, I can't imagine. But you see, I'm still not hearing anything that makes sense to me. And I don't mean you're making sense. But if you've got a system where the officers are having significant problems on the job, there's some systemic failure there that isn't being attended to. Now, I don't know what it is. But does anybody talk about that? Well, I think that the uh, there's a there's um I think there's a tension within the youth prison staffing. You know, there's a lot of them who are kind of old school and they feel like the kids get away with a bunch of stuff and they're not held accountable. That they're um, you know they can pound on a the teenager can you know pound on a guard and then just get a little time out. Um, or even if they do get prosecuted, it just takes a really long time to, you know, bring it through the system. And, um, and so the kids don't see the consequence right away. Um, you know, it, it's an extraordinarily difficult job. You have the uh, – you've mentioned the Department of Youth Services and then we have the Department of Corrections. Now, I assume then two different departments in Ohio? Yeah, d- uh, Department of – Rehabilitation and correction is the adult system, mm-hmm. and then uh, Department of Youth Services is for um, kids ages 12 through the 21st birthday who were adjudicated on delinquent acts that, had they been adults, would have been considered felonies. Okay, and so those two systems, as far as you can tell, don't overlap then the adult system and the juvenile as far as training or, um, you know, um, uh, uh, supervision. We had a we had a warden in in here talking to us last year. Oh, Chris Money. Yeah, and uh, was very informative and seemed to really be on top of what she was doing at that time. And, and she was special because she brought, for lack of a better phrase, enlightenment to Marion Correctional Facility or Marion Correctional Institute, I should say. Institution. 
thank you institution. But as far as overlap or support for each other, did you find that uh, at all in your uh, investigation? I mean, when Indian River had that 12-hour siege, it was the DRC SWAT team that came in to end it with pepper spray and zip ties. Um, And Department of Rehabilitation and Correction has been um, offering extra staff to come in and fill in uh, open spots in the youth prisons um, and eventually, you know, like they can't do that forever. Um, but there's, that's ongoing. I think it's been going on and off for at least a year, uh, as they have, you know, more and more problems with their, with the staffing at the youth prisons. DRC is helping out in that regard, but no, they're separate, they're separate departments and they have a different mission. Uh, there is an overlap in that, um, you know, the Department of Youth Services does a recidivism study, and within three years of release from the youth prison system, 43% either return to the, um, to the youth system or they, go, they graduate to the adult system. And we don't know what happened to the other 57%, but there is a study from Nationwide Children's Hospital that showed that they studied... Um, incarcerated kids, kids kids who had been incarcerated who were on Medicaid versus kids who had never been incarcerated who were on Medicaid. That was the, the two control group, the, the compare and contrast. And those who had been incarcerated um, had like a 600% higher chance of dying an early death um, than those who had never been incarcerated. And if you talk to any of the guards or lawyers who work in that system, they can rattle off, you know, four, six, eight different names of uh, kids who've who've died shortly after leaving the youth prison system. So there must be a um, director of the uh, youth services and then uh, a board that would oversee it. Um, From what I read, the director has only been there three or four years. Uh, Is that right, Laura? Well, Amy asked is that she was appointed by Governor um, DeWine as the director in um, December of 2021. However, uh, she spent almost all of her career in DYS. She started out as a as a youth um, prison guard back in 1996, and um, I think she left um, left the department in like 2018, and then came back in 2021. So she has extensive experience for sure. What strikes me about the problem is what I said early on, which is I haven't read anything that any of these systems throughout the states are getting it right. Now, that's a big generalization. I suppose there are some states that are getting it right, but there are enough states getting it wrong that it it's getting some press. And so when I hear about that, I'm thinking, my, my knee-jerk reaction is, okay, this is that part of society that people don't care about. Kids with troubles, kids who commit crimes, we have a system... We don't really care about them. We don't fund it adequately. There's probably a way to handle this in a more effective way, but it takes funds, and that just isn't very politically attractive. What am I missing? Well, actually, Amy S. says that she has the money uh, available to hire more guards. She just hasn't been able to do it because people are not interested in the in the work. That's that's one thing. Yeah. Another thing is like you talk to the advocates for for kids for juvenile justice. And they'll tell you, like, you need to invest earlier in neighborhoods and in education and in 
pre-K and invest in these families um, at the front end so that they don't experience all that trauma. Um, or when they do experience the trauma, they get the counseling needed to help them, right? Um, so that's that's one one approach. Another approach is you know they, what they call diversion, where you try to keep those kids out of the juvenile detention center in the first place and building off ramps. Um, that's what the Annie E. Casey, Casey Foundation calls it, where I think it's the Casey Foundation, one of those experts. They were talking about like a, an, a, building an off ramp. So you live in a neighborhood that is over-policed and a kid who's out doing dumb stuff, um, minor vandalism, being unruly, out after curfew, whatever. If you're living in a neighborhood that's over, that's heavily policed, there's more likely that that kid's going to get picked up, right? Mm-hmm. Versus living out in the in the suburbs or wherever where you know it's not as it's not as patrolled. So that's one that's one off ramp. It's just based on like what neighborhood you live in, and are the police officers are they willing to call the parent and say you don't want your kid in juvenile detention? You need to come down and pick this kid up. Um, or, you know, how willing are the are the police officers to, if they can't get a hold of mom or dad, find another, like an aunt or an uncle or a trusted neighbor or, you know, like try sure. to make it. Because like one one night in, uh, in juvenile detention, one of the Franklin County juvenile judges told us, and I've seen this in other studies, is that one night greatly increases your chances of flunking out of school, having your grades slip. It's a very traumatic experience. You might think like these kids are all hardened and certainly a lot of them have uh, have a tough exterior, but it's they're still they're still kids who are, you know, subject to the emotions and the the thoughts of what's going on and what's happening to me. The uh, I was going to ask you about the judges, uh, the role that the judiciary has. So the judges that are placing these kids in in juvenile detention is it part of the uh, common pleas bench, the municipal bench, or the family domestic court. family court? Do you it, know, I mean, in most counties, it's common pleas juvenile division. Okay, and so the judges have to understand the problem too. Is that what your investigation showed? Well, I mean, to some degree, although you know, the question is why why are they sending so many kids to DYS? And is there a way to divert more of them? Um, you know, Ohio does do a lot of diversion work, but doesn't mean they, they couldn't do more. I'm guessing that there is, I'm guessing there aren't that many, underlying the word guess, there, there aren't that many available diversion programs for kids. Well, <laughs> I mean, they have like, the, it's called the Juvenile Detention Alternative Initiative that the Annie E. Casey Foundation runs. It's the JDAI. And I think about 18 or 19 of Ohio's 88 counties have embraced this approach. Uh, we, we did a separate story on Marion County because they, they went so hard for this approach that they were able to shut their juvenile detention center and, and uh, open a family resource center. And the family resource center kind of like tries to get the kids who are high risk, high need, um, maybe don't have really good home lives, don't have a lot of support, have a lot of issues going on. A lot of these kids who are in the juvenile detention or juvenile justice system, they start out on the uh, um, abuse and neglect side. That's how they first come into into contact with the, with the juvenile court. 
And then they have truancy cases. You know, it's almost like they graduate. Let me stop you right there. When you said abuse and neglect, so that signals to me that child support is, or not child support, whatever the agency is. Thank you. Child Protective Service is swooping in, and then from there they somehow find their way into the juvenile court system? Well, I mean, for example, um, you know, we we interviewed a family with two kids who were justice-involved. And, you know, you went to to their house, and there was obvious major problems um, going on. And I think that there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of families where they're struggling. They're struggling with all kinds of issues, and and it's it's impacting the kids. I was somewhat alarmed by the, seems like uh, the way that our justice system is starting to um, have younger and younger people put into the adult prison system, charged as adults and sentenced as adults. But boy, when I read your investigation in those articles, it, it, it almost might be better for some of them to be in the adult system because it seems more secure. I don't know about that. I mean, I, you <laughs> You're know, not ready to go there. Well, going you know, like again, going into detention or into prison as a kid is a uh, usually just um, means worse outcomes. And um, kids who serve in the in the DRC system, there's about two dozen who have been bound over and are incarcerated under 18, and they're all kept together in the same unit um, at um, Corrections Reception Center in Pickaway County. But once they turn 18, they go into into the general population, um, and certainly having, you know, getting that extra two years, two or three years, you're not going to put a 15, 16 year old in. But they're still, you know, you can. They're still pretty young when when they're 18. Going into that group, we did interview a guy who um, was involved in a double murder um, back in the mid '90s uh, in, I think it was Franklin County, might have been the adjacent county. Anyway, he um, he's been in for more than 25 years, and he went in at, at 15, 16 years old, and they they weren't segregating the the young teenagers from everybody else, and um, he was sexually assaulted. And he said he still, he can still remember the sounds and the smells and the, all of it. Well, that wasn't meant to be a solution, but um, let me ask you this. Did I read something that the governor has um, assigned a, a task force to look into this issue? And, um, and if not a task force, what are they doing to address? I mean, you could call concerns? it a task force or a working panel or a... You know, whatever. It's led by um, Tom Stickrath. He was the Department of Youth Services director uh, many years ago. He's he he headed up BCI for a while. He's like been a long time. He was um, public safety director, so he's got a lot of experience in state government. He retired, I think, last year. Um, so he's he's heading it up. The panel's got like uh, some some judges, some f- retired judges. Um, uh, an assistant prosecutor in a juvenile division over in Stark County, um, a couple of people who have lived experience, that who who have been in, in prison or in, in youth prison. And so right so far they've had three meetings, and um, so far they've kind of been on like a, a listening tour, I would, I would call it. They're trying to gather information about from the employee perspective and the um, – the national experts and what they would advise and 
that sort of thing. Um, Stickrest says that the governor wants them to think big. Um, there's no real timetable for getting this work done, but but they're supposed to come up with some recommendations. Um, you know, whether they are swinging for the fences for major reforms or, you know, kind of more nibbling around the edges is um, to be determined. With what you found in the investigation and your understanding of this, Laura, do you have any suggestions? Uh, we talked about there's enough money here to hire people, but they can't find people that want to work in the system. If they could, do you think that would uh, help? Well, I think that um, one of the solutions they they've had a little bit of success with is um, paying retention bonuses and hiring bonuses for teachers. Um, so they still have, you know, one in five or one in four teaching positions are open. Uh, but the teachers that I've talked to have said, oh, yeah, that, that retention bonus is, was really key. Um, you know, there's a, a massive shortage of behavioral health um, experts and, and specialists, and they're really needed in the youth prison system. I think I think one in five of those positions are open. But um, before you can get your teachers and your and your mental health counselors, though, you, you have to have that um, security level, right? Like, so one of the things some of the teachers told that uh, Stickrath's panel is, you know, they, wa they want security staff present when teachers are meeting with the students. Um, because, you know, a number of teachers have been attacked and injured, and, um, you know, that's, that's usually not what you sign up for. So you have um, teenagers there, uh, you said, from age 12 to 21. How is the education set up for that? Or do they have separate grades, like in a traditional high school, or are they is it more like, a, you know, a rural high school where they're all in the same classroom? Is it virtual? Do you know? Well, I mean, post like during the pandemic, it was it was uh, you know odd, like it was for everybody. But they have um, you know they have a school building with a shop class and a library and art classes and um, almost I think about forty six percent of the kids are on individualized education plans. So they're supposed to have their education specifically tailored to their to their learning disability or to their short shortcomings. Mm -hmm. um, and, but, you know, when you have such um, high-need kids, you know, like 45% need special special tailored instruction, and then you have, uh, um, you know, a quarter of your jobs are open, it becomes extraordinarily difficult. And I talked to a number of uh, guards and a couple of uh, kids who said that yeah, like when they have the long-term uh, lockdowns because they don't have enough staff to let the kids out of their rooms, the teachers will drop worksheets off, and so the kids treat those like like a joke. Like they just don't do them. Yeah. Did they try to um, get them their diplomas? Is, is that even? Oh, a, a yeah, sure. Like they they have um, you know they have graduations. Um, uh, periodically, they have uh, they have a GED program. Um, the you know we we did a tour at the Cuyahoga Hills uh, Juvenile Correctional Facility up by Cleveland, and you know they had an art class and gymnasium, and it, it looks like a regular school. Now these are smaller schools because each each 
each of the three prisons has about, I you know, 100 to 150 kids. And some of them, if you've if you're already over 18, you already have your GED. You you're not necessarily going to school. Maybe you're going to go to, you know, job training, or do something else while you're there. You know the. You said three things that really struck me over the course of our conversation. Yeah, I saw you taking is, notes over there. Yeah, I'm taking, well, I learned that from Gonzo. He taught me how to take notes. But you said three things that really struck me. These kids, most if not all, have suffered some kind of trauma. And Gonzo and I already know from our conversation with a pediatrician that the the male mind, at least, doesn't really fully mature until age 25, and then, as you've said, they're all high-needs kids. So it really is a cauldron for bad things to happen. And and bad things are happening. Oh, I, I'm sure they are. I just see it as a monumentally difficult problem. And I, I would think that even with enough correctional officers, I'm wondering if they get all the other behavioral need I mean, ha- you know, half need. of their counselor jobs are open. And I would— you know, I would say that education and counseling are the probably the two most important services mm. that they can deliver to the kids. You know, the teachers will tell you that education is the the single biggest determinant to success once they leave. You know, if they're if they're not reading close to grade level, and if they can't self regulate, and then how successful are they going to be? They may be, you know, one of the forty three percent that uh, return to prison. I think something else you said that was really important is, and Gonzo and I know this as lawyers, you know, you don't just look at this problem, you got to look backward. How did we get here? And that's where community development and community resources fall into play to try to keep kids from getting to that dangerous point in the first place. But that involves an even greater societal analysis and and repair. Yeah, that's a much bigger Uh, question. Much bigger. Laura, as um, lawyers, Jack and I um, are um, aware that oftentimes lawsuits bring reform. And uh, in, in a lot of ways, we're proud of our profession in that way. And I know that press attention to uh, issues like this bring reform. And I want to thank you and your colleagues at the USA uh, Today Network, Ohio, uh, for bringing this out because it wouldn't be something that I – mean, I think you, know, you and I are pretty well versed in what's going on around the state, we would have never known. Yeah, well, these, you know, the, the youth system is really, has a lot of uh, levels of confidentiality, and uh, so it took a lot to shine a light on it, but I think it's important. Yes, definitely. Well, yeah, another reason that investigative journalism is so important, so nicely done. Thank you for being with us. All right, thank you. Our thanks to WOSU and Laura and our sound engineer, Dalton Jones. If you like what you've heard, tell a friend. We want this to be more than just us. We want it to be all of us. We'll be back soon with another social justice issue. Until then, so long.